This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? listeners this is jonah goldberg host of the remnant podcast brought to you by the dispatch and dispatch media so last week you know our a week and a half ago we got some uh friendly complaints in the comments that i rely too much on uh, my aei colleagues on this podcast so we had two episodes last week with non-aei people and then i said you know screw it um uh, there's nothing wrong with AI people. They're some of the finest people in the world. And um, I'm just going to go with the people that I, I think are interesting. And for the, for the AI haters out there, I picked the perfect uh, guest um, because few people encapsulate sort of the, uh, the, the, the uh, commitment to, to the American uh, ideal of, of prosperity, growth, innovation, experimentation, uh, optimism for the future, then uh, my friend and colleague, um, his only flaw is he has David Frenchian takes on popular culture, but that's a conversation for maybe later. And I'm, of course, talking about uh, none other than the irreplaceable James Pethokoukis. Uh Jim, welcome back to The Remnant. It's been a while. Uh Joan, thank you, uh, thank you very much, and I uh, I want to uh, commend you on your your instinct there to ignore your listeners. Uh, <laughs> you don't want to focus group this thing, you know. They didn't focus group the iPad, you know. They, you know, they the people don't know what they want. You tell them what they want, and they want me. That's right. And well, I, I I've been meaning for almost twenty years now to write an essay about how much I hate the phrase "If you build it, they will come." When it comes to public policy. It's horrible. It is that movie has done more damage to American politics than a lot of political movies have because it is this act of faith that oh, if we just build this giant white elephant, then Americans will support it. If we build a monorail, everybody in Springfield will love it, kind of thing. But when it comes to podcasts, there's a certain truth to it. You uh, act boldly, and great forces will come to your aid, and you just have to go with your instincts, particularly in a crowded marketplace. And um, so. Uh, where to begin? Um, you are um, you are getting more and more robust in your in your your screw contemporary politics. Let's seize the future, kind of uh, stuff. You're are you still optimistic about where the country's heading in the next ten to twenty years, and 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 why? Uh, I think I, I I think I I think I am. Uh, I think despite. I think all despite, you know, the chaos uh, of recent years, um, I think we still do a lot of the fundamentally right. 
things in this country. I mean, this is we still have a free enterprise economy. We still have lots of smart people with the freedom uh, to build uh, amazing things and research amazing technologies. And I think broadly, if we don't screw that up, uh, we will create a better country and hopefully better world. Now, what I want is to accelerate that process. Uh, it's been going on to listen. Americans today uh, live better than they did 30 years ago, and they live better than they did back in you know 1970. Uh, but what I write about a lot, and I write about this in my newsletter, Faster Please, which is sort of <laughs> kind of tells you where I'm going, is that I, I would like that process to be accelerated. And so what I try to focus on is the kinds of public policies that will create the sort of, um, uh, and, you know, this is sort of cliche, but sort of the ecosystem in which people can do great things with their lives, create great companies, create great technologies. That's what I'm focused I don't know, like, like what, what the exact next great technology is going to be, uh, I'm not a Jonah. I'm not a central planner. I'm not a central planner. Uh, but what I try to cr- make sure is that people have the freedom to do those things. And if they do, I'm pretty confident great things will happen. So, um, a, a sentiment more out of step with elements of the current, right? Um, I'm hard pressed to find. Um, well, I mean, like other than partisan nonsense, right? But there is this post-liberal crowd. There's the nationalist crowd. I reviewed a book um, that I actually quite enjoyed, but it was nonsense in the, in the most fundamental sense, uh, that said we all lived better off in as serfs 800 years ago. Because even though the quality of life was was low in material terms, we all had an integral social order. Um, what, um, when you say that, and I look, don't I don't get appendicitis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, no, don't get starters, a toothache. Don't, do, do, don't you remember the, just, what, what's the, the, uh, the Tom Hanks movie, uh, a castaway where he had a, he, he had a toothache and he had to like pull it out himself with a pair of skates, the blade. I mean, sure. I mean, well, but uh, I guess I, but the question, the, the more serious question, look, I'm, I'm with you. I, you know, I, I'm one of these. Um, I like modern dentistry guys. Uh, call me wacky. I think air conditioning is pretty awesome. Um, antibiotics are pretty good. But um, when you say stuff like that, you know, what do you say to the man cannot live by bread alone crowd that says, okay, so we had we have better gadgets today, but we also have more suicide, deaths of despair, more alienation. I'm not sure all I'm not sure the alienation thing is entirely true, but like they say it. Um, and I think there's some truth to it, certainly community breakdown, loss of meaning, loneliness, epidemic, blah, 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 blah. I'm not dismissing those things because some of them are very serious and real, but like, you do know that you trigger people when you just say, um, oh, we'll, we live so much better than we did 30 years ago or 50 years ago or, or 800 years ago. So how do you respond to those people? I don't fully understand it. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, uh, I would not, you know, I would not want to live, uh, you know, 30 years ago. I would not want to live a, you know, uh, a half century ago. I, I don't, I'm not a transhumanist who views technological progress as my source of meaning. 
Um, you know, I, uh, you know, I'm a Christian. Uh, technology does not stop me from being a Christian. Technology and technological progress does not stop me from, uh, you know, uh, loving my family. Uh, it does not. It does not stop me from, uh, you know, uh, having you know great relationships at work. Uh, it, it never. It never stopped me from coaching my kids' uh, soccer team. I, I seem to be. I seem to be able to create a a a life worth living. Uh, while while also being able to get treated for cancer. All right. So I I I I, I fund. I think. Listen. I think a lot of this is just playing to, uh, you know, a changing political base that may be, you know, less happy with uh, disruption in the economy. But even the economic statistics, um, uh, like I said, well, you know, there's a lot of it. You know, I can point to all kinds of evidence saying, you know, you know, wages have gone up over the past uh, 30 years. Now, it used to be that, you know, only like progressives would say, well, that, you know, that's untrue. Uh, wages have been flat since the 1970s. And I think you have some Republicans who have, who have sort of adopted those arguments because they seem to fit the politics of the time, but it's an empirically false statement. So if we can't even begin sort of, you know, with like the truth, I'm not sure where we go uh, after that. Um, all right. So we'll probably circle back to this point later, but I, I, you wrote... Um You've been writing about how the U.S. economy is heading into or becoming a postmodern economy. What do you mean by that? What does that look like? Um, what is it? Well, I think, well, you know, it's a uh, uh, it's a big fancy title for just the idea that perhaps uh, the, the sort of economy that we've experienced for the past few decades, which has been uh, an economy of, you know, you know, low inflation, you know, very low interest rates. Um, it doesn't always have to be like that. And that's what, and, you know, and a lot of the, um, sort of nonchalant attitude toward the Biden agenda and a lot more spending was that, well, we don't have to worry about that, uh, because interest rates will be low forever. Inflation will be low forever. So we have a, basically we can just sort of print money, uh, and everything will be fine. Uh, clearly that's not the case. Clearly, uh, much derided econ uh, sort of one hundred and one principles, which you know are really derided on the on the populist left and right, uh, have sort of come back into play, in which we are seeing, you know, higher interest rates, inflation, which I think really gets to the point that you know you need to get the fundamentals correct, uh, and those fundamentals really haven't uh, changed. Um, so that's, but you know, certainly there's one aspect of that I, I hope does change because the modern economy for much of the past half century has been a sort of low productivity economy. And I'm hoping that I'm hoping that's going to change this decade and, and, and beyond, because if you have a much higher productivity economy, you're going to have much higher wages. A good reason why wage growth hasn't been faster, though it hasn't been flat, uh, is because productivity hasn't been particularly vigorous for a half century other than really sort of the late 90s and uh, early 2000s. So in that way, uh, I would very much like a postmodern economy because the postmodern economy has been slower than I would have preferred. Um, So I know you're not a central planner. Um, Not a central planner. Not Not a central central. planner. I know that this is like uh, you you walk around AI sort of like Dustin Hoffman, um, you know, and Rain Man, just not a central planner, not a central planner. (laughs) But... um, (laughs) Uh, give me a sense of where your best guess 
is in terms of the things in the pipeline that you think might jumpstart a sort of another roaring 20s uh thrilling 30s thrilling 30s um <laughs> you know one of my favorites still is asteroid mining um i'm 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 huge into that although i one of the things i love about asteroid mining are the number of people who don't understand the economics in terms of like they say for i remember this was a couple of years ago them saying there was some asteroid that had two trillion dollars worth of lithium or titanium doesn't really matter some commodity right and they seem to think that like the, the the street value of that commodity will not change when you bring in two trillion dollar you know you flood the market with 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 whatever i mean it's sort of like gold you know you could take all the gold in the world and it would fill two olympic swimming pools um if you brought in five trillion metric tons more of gold gold would not be as expensive um but anyway that's that's neither here nor there that is just a rambling uh, digression what are the things that you think might uh you know bring happy days are here again um sort of economics to the united states well it's it's, it's funny that you mentioned asteroid mar- mining which seems really a a a, a sci-fi uh concept remember outland the sean connery movie outland with sean connery it was an awesome movie yeah. Um, I, I believe it's also um, a, a key element, element in the book and TV series, The Expanse, in which there are mm-hmm. you know, people out in the asteroid belt. And, Fact check true. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it's it's funny because I'm actually seeing like that discussed uh, by consulting firms, by Wall Street banks as not a crazy idea. And the reason it's sort of not a crazy idea anymore is because it's become so much cheaper to, to, to launch a rocket. I mean, the, the, if you're talking about the great innovations of the past decades, I think you have to talk about the um, the internet. I think you have to, t- it's talked about a lot less because some people don't like it. You have to talk about fracking. But really, the huge drop in launch costs is in a, really makes a lot of these crazy ideas, um, what seem like crazy ideas, really possible. And it seems to me people are, just to pick one area of space, people are really underestimating what's happening there. Because oftentimes when uh, it's discussed, it's discussed purely in terms of sort of billionaire space tourism. Bernie Sanders, you know, tweets a lot at Elon Musk and said, well, that's, you know, it's great that your billionaires can go off into space, but look at all the problems here, which is also an argument um, that you heard with Apollo. But that is really a very minor portion of what people people in the in the expanding space industry are thinking about i mean are people aware that you're going to have private companies building space platforms over the next 5 10 15 years like multiple space platforms uh which will sort of be industrial office parks in orbit i think a lot of people are not aware of that um so sort of so in a way sort of these 1960s dreams of space uh, are starting to come true. If you look at uh, advances in geothermal energy and nuclear fusion, huge, really huge advances uh, in the, within the past five years or really within the past two years. Uh, again, things that are being discussed uh, by by investors as real things that can, that can happen, uh, not just within our lifetimes, but again, within the next you know decade or so. So, you know, clean, abundant energy, um, you know, a, a true space economy that just isn't satellites. Uh, it's so 
these technologies, it's about more than just sort of AI, which is what you hear a lot about. Uh, sort of, here's what I would do. I would, I would go back, look at what people were predicting in the 1960s that we would have had 20 years ago. And a lot of those things are really happening with the notable exception of super intelligent monkeys. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of focus in the 1960s mm -hmm. uh, about, about raising the intelligence level of animals. Uh, so they didn't really predict Uber. They predicted that uh, you'd be able to get into your car and it would be uh, driven by an orangutan <laughs> taken to the airport. We are not making the sorts of progress I would have hoped for in that area, but we'll see. Well, but uh, let me push back on that just slightly. Um, <laughs> Please do. CRISPR, who knows? Like, we could be developing CRISPR along a certain path for very, you know, for the next 15 years. And then all of a sudden, you know, this or the same thing that you get throughout the Industrial Revolution of like, like, oh, my gosh, it's not just a dessert topping. It's a floor wax. You can use CRISPR to all of a sudden make super intelligent monkeys. Right. And we just don't know yet. But like there could be a lateral move um, as we, you know, like for all we know, the path towards super intelligent monkeys goes through curing Alzheimer's. And we are working a lot on that, as we should. Um, I am not a technological rejectionist. Uh -huh. I am not a Luddite. Um, I do fear. I do fear <laughs> the super intelligent uh, monkeys. One, one of the things I write about in my newsletter, uh, my Substack newsletter, Faster Please, is how so much of the media, and I think this has played a big role in sort of the, the, the I, I think, the relative stagnation of the U.S. economy compared to, I think, what we could have been doing over the past uh, half century is a very negative media, which really, no. At, at one point, used to be used to portray fa a fantastic future. You know, Star Trek being the classic example, but then became very pessimistic along with the uh, environmental movement. Uh, really, starting the late sixties, nineteen seventies. You know, Soylent Green with Charlton Heston. Uh, worlds of of uh, overpopulation and complete, you know, environmental degradation. Um, and of course, one of those movies was Planet of the Apes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Planet of the Planet of the Apes, um, an early sort of uh, pessimist movie. Although, if if people couldn't figure out from our conversation about super intelligent monkeys that that was a call out to Planet of the Apes, then they really are listening to the wrong podcast. Um, that said, just fa one factual question before uh, I, I press. And I knew if I brought up super intelligent apes, that that would derail the conversation. Successful. Exactly. I mean, like I've I've I, I literally just checked the box here. Um, I'm almost <laughs> willing to let you go, but we're going to keep you around a little while longer. So I did not know that we were on we we're 10, 15, 20 years out from having like big industrial office parks in space. What specifically? I'm not against having them. You know, I mean, I want some regulations about how, you know, they can't fall back with their nuclear reactors. And, you know, um, like in that episode of the Hulk where they all thought Hulk was an alien because he happened to be near the satellite that had fallen. Um, and they thought he came down with it, but in reality he was, uh, uh, uh you know, we weren't importing green, big green men. Anyway, uh, what would, what exactly what are you gonna do with those office parks, Jonah? What are you going to build up there? Well, yeah, I'm not my, what do you do? <laughs> no, but like, say, like, what, what is, what is the ROI on that? Like, what is, what, what, we got to get these office parks up there to do X. What is it to build way stations to go to Mars? Is it, is it? Uh, can we make better ball bearings? I mean, is it all about well, ball that, bearings? Is, I, well, that, that's. I mean, there, there are. I mean, the big idea, the big. Uh, I think the big answer to that is they're not entirely 
sure of what building things in it. I mean, I think ideally they would like to have very large, and this is what Jeff Bezos talked about, sort of very large um, industrial parks up there to make things that we don't want to make on earth. But uh, I think more immediately like they talk about fun, and, and just environmentally dirty things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think I like that. I, I think more, I think uh, more of the point, at least in the near term, uh, I mean, there's been talk about, you know, different kinds of fiber optic cables, which would be, which would be much more efficient than what you can make on earth. They're, they're very, there are ideas for, for drugs that you could make that you, that would be much easier to make uh, in space uh, they, because, because of the lack of gravity, but I don't think they know when I talk to people who are building these, they're like, well, you know, a lot of, a lot of what we do on the inter- internet today was not completely obvious to people in 1995. And I think that's what you have to, um, I think that's sort of the attitude, uh, that you have to take now. You now you can now listen certainly and there's you know there, you can you know it would be helpful if you want to build sort of space based solar power where then you can you know have huge reflectors in space and beam the energy down to earth I mean that's a possibility but I think that I think the true answer is we don't know yet what the killer app is uh, but I'm eager to find out no I am too I'm, again I'm not against it I'm just I was leg- legitimately curious hey so on on this point though um where are we with space elevators because that was a big sci fi thing for a while and. Um, I thought it was, a, it hurt my head to think about the engineering of it, but it'd be really cool to have. Is that no, is, 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 are people saying, yeah, that wasn't a great idea or are they working at least doing on doing the math still on it? I think there are, I, I think there are people still enthusiastic about whether it's, a, there's a, there's a space elevator, there's the tall tower, uh, idea as well i think i think the, the, the physics and the metallurgy aren't quite, are, aren't quite there yet. But I will say it's a good sign that at least I see space sellers being depicted now in uh, in media. Uh, uh, there's actually a new, like a new restaurant opened up at Epcot Center uh, at Walt Disney World where you're supposed to be on a space elevator really? going up, and it, it sort of gives the illusion that you've taken a space elevator up to orbit, so you're eating, um, you know, you're eating your hamburger in orbit, which I think is important because, you know. Walt Disney is one of the great futurists of the 20th century, and Tomorrowland was really very important in the 1950s and 1960s in helping present an image of uh, of the future, like why we might want to go in space, like how cool that might might be. And then it sort of stopped doing that for a long time. And uh, Tomorrowland, which I've written a bit about in particular, became very retro. Uh, as the U.S. economy quit producing sort of technological marvels, you stopped seeing sort of Disney's Tomorrowland reflecting that. And they, they went through this whole period where they, they got kind of retro and more sort of steampunk, like, you know, sort of, you know, Victorian sci-fi um, Jules Verne. So the fact that Disney world is sort of re-embracing, I think technological optimism. I like that. Then of course you also have, uh, uh, what is it? What is the, um, uh, the, uh, um, the fountain uh, series on, uh, on, on HBO, which showed a space elevator actually uh, falling down and killing 100 million Apple people. Apple TV. So we yeah. really have we really have uh, both sides. Yeah, F- the Foundation, not Fountain, and Apple TV, not HBO. So yeah, the Foundation series, uh, which is one of the one of the, one of the rare depictions of a space elevator. Uh, I just don't like the thing. I just don't like the fact that it fell over. 
But I mean, terrorists knocked it down. It wasn't like um, to be sure. To yeah. be sure, there was nothing structurally wrong with it. Right. The right. Con- the concept is valid. That's totally right. I mean, valid. Like if we're gonna if we're gonna criticize any new technology because terrorists can blow it up, then we can't have any new technologies. Um, although actually, it might have been like a nine eleven inside job thing. I think it was. Uh, yeah, I, I take it back. I think it, Same I think it was an inside job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I think it's really important that we that we you know that we're able to create. Because listen, uh, with all my talk about acceleration, economic growth, creative destruction, there's a destruction aspect. You know, uh, you know, jobs will come and go, companies will rise and fall. Um, you know, cities that were thriving may not be thriving in the future. So I think it's really important that people feel like like this is leading somewhere. That it's not just going to you know lead to uh, you, know, you know space elevators as cool as they might be, but that it will lead to longer lives, healthier lives. Uh, more opportunity. Um, so I think that's, so I think being able to present like a pos- possibilities of what that world might look like. Uh, because on the other side, I have a very, I, I know what the world looks like when we have really bad growth. I mean, that's kind of gets to your point, uh, you know, earlier um, that when you have slow economic growth, when wages aren't growing, uh, you have what we saw in the past 10 years. Uh, you have, uh, yeah, I think you have a, a world of uh, less tolerance. Uh, you have a world of a lot more f- uh, economic frustration. So to make the case, I think that, oh, you know, you know, growth is disruptive to communities because it's bad. I mean, I think we've seen the alternative. And no one seems very happy. No one seems very happy right now with that their wages are growing less, to, less than inflation. Um you know, I, I think that in itself shows that generally people like their living standards to go up, not be stagnant. So I got, um, I have no objection. I mean, I, 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 one of the things that frustrates me so much about, about the art, these kinds of arguments, not the argument you're making, but this entire realm of debate is that it's a lot of people argue as if they're like the, the drunk who looks for their car keys where the light is good. And so Immigration gets blamed for all sorts of things that innovation is, in fact, more responsible for. You know, we haven't seen a sharp fall off in industrial manufacturing in this country. We've just seen a sharp fall off in industrial manufacturing workforce because automation replaces a lot of human beings. And um, some people used to think that was a good thing, like in the sense that horrible, dangerous factories were kind of a bad place to work and a dangerous place to work. Um, and I'm not saying I'm, I'm not laughing at people being mad that they're losing jobs, but that's sort of, it seems to me that's the problem. It's not so much that economic growth dislocates communities, although there's some of that, obviously it's that, you know, technological innovation. I mean, the, the, the Luddites weren't complaining about economic growth. The Luddites were complaining about technological replacement. What do you do in what what is your response, which I know you're familiar to this argument, to those who argue that um, automation, um, robots replacing cashiers with iPads and all these kinds of stuff is going to create a vast lumpen proletariat that is a simply that is simply locked out of the benefits of economic growth? Well, certainly histories would suggest that is not the case. And I find it amazing that this argument has sort of, uh, we've, 
I, we, we've started talking. It, it's, it's something politicians talk about. I mean, remember we, uh, when Andrew Yang was running for president? Amazingly, uh, he talked about, a lot about the great truckers riot, I think, of 2025, when AI would replace all the truckers, autonomous trucks, and they'd be rioting in the streets, that kind of thing. That that probably because there have been real advances in AI. It's something people have talked a lot about more. That's why we're talking about a, you know, a, a universal uh, basic income. Yet amazingly, that the exact moment where where this issue, I think, really, you know, sort of burst back into public consciousness, and people were very worried in the late '60s about this uh, as as well, is a time when unemployment was 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 falling rapidly, and I think that's that's the key. If you have, and and we're seeing it again, if you have a, an economy which is thriving, which is uh, uh, um, where. Uh, where jobs are being created, you're not. It's it's not an it's it's not going to be an issue. We need to have a a high performance, high functioning economy, and that, as we've seen, will still produce lots of labor force participation. It will produce lots of jobs. So until that, until you can prove otherwise, I'm going to go with the historical record. And that historical record isn't just going back into the 1950s or the Industrial Revolution. That historical record goes back into 2017, 2018, 2019, when we were getting uh, rapid job growth, rapid wage growth, even at the bottom. All the things that weren't supposed to be happening anymore show that if, if you have a rapidly growing economy, and even better, if we get a much higher productivity economy, I think a lot of those job concerns really disappear. It's going to be an old argument. Every time there's a new innovation, someone's going to raise it up. But you have to be willing, I think, to take a, a, a little bit of a risk that, that that past performance kind of does suggest future results before we immediately jump to everybody needs a universal basic income. Uh, I understand that that's, you know people in Silicon Valley talk a lot about that because um, I think they sense sort of the... the the worry out there, and there's already sort of this anti-tech feeling, so, this, so they're going to say, oh, well, don't worry about it. We'll just give you a UBI. But I think we're very far from being at a place where that's, some, that's something we need to really consider. So you don't think there's any, I mean, look, I mean, I'm with you. I always hated the phrase hamburger flipper jobs. Remember in the 80s, that was the big thing. Oh, yeah, the economy's growing, but they're just hamburger flipper jobs. And like, um, you know, the amount of social good that came from getting your first job at McDonald's and the training that you got at McDonald's, those were hugely valuable jobs. And it wasn't just hamburger flipper jobs, but it was, it was demeaning to like entry-level work, which I thought was kind of gross. No, at the same time, I, I, I highly recommend, listen, I highly recommend um, that uh, people watch, a, you may have forgot, uh, uh, it, was called, it, was, it was called The Founder. It was about Ray Kroc, yeah, yeah, starred yeah. Michael Keaton, came out in 2016. And a lot of them, and the first part of that movie showing about the uh, sort of the start of McDonald's and how you run the restaurant. Uh, and, and what, so, you know, those those, those are jobs where if you got those, those initial jobs, you were learning something. You were learning how to operate. Uh, in a really kind of a high stress environment, and boy, if you're if you're worried about your kids are just going to become a bunch of video game players sit there on TikTok, get them one of those jobs. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, no, look, I'm I'm with you on that. And so far as like, I, I, like if you get a entry level, bottom of the rung job at McDonald's, um, and you are there and you have good performance for like a year, you'll be an assistant <laughs> manager. I mean, look, those jobs. Our entry, they teach enormous number of skills. I, I had a friend who owned some restaurants um, who said, I will always hire someone 
who spent at least a year at McDonald's because they just teach you customer service, how to clean up after yourself, you know, how to be polite, all these things that 17-year-olds just don't necessarily automatically know how to do in a in a business environment. So I'm not I'm not dismissing that, but on the on the big macro dynamism robots are here to help kind of thing. Um it is true, isn't it, that like for a big chunk of American and a big chunk of history, um, if you had a strong back and a good work ethic, you could get your way into a middle class life. Um, doesn't automation of truck driving and construction and and various other things like that threaten that historic example where you 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 just being willing to dig ditches and work hard isn't enough anymore. Is that a bad thing? Is it not a good thing? How do you handle the transition to all the people who have the sunk costs of their careers or in their fifties and they're being replaced by AI and robots? Well, I think, I think having the ability to grab a shovel and dig a ditch that, 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 that ability should be, a highly paid job. I mean, that's not a highly paid job. You need a skill. You need to be do. You need to be able to do something else. You need to be able to. I don't know. Operate. Operate a backhoe. I mean, that's harder than uh, than than digging a ditch. And I think it's. I think it says a lot that how much of our conversation has been about. We we've gone through a half century, where a lot of like the expectations of of technological progress broadly construed, whether it's in energy, whether it's in space, whether it's in uh, whether it's in in health, and what later become in biotechnology, where so much of that promise has not been realized, and that how much of our and I you know I'm not blaming you, but I think it's it's again I think it's very typical. How much has been about well, if we should somehow get all that promise, if AI should work and robot should work, and if space should produce what you're talking about, well, here are all the downsides. When we are, when at this point, we should really be focusing on making sure those things can happen because we've gone, we've gone, you know, decades where they haven't happened. And now that we're getting sort of an inkling of, of being able to, you know, create, massive floating space stations and an inkling of being able to draw, you know, limitless cheap energy from the earth or nuclear fusion, this dream of decades, when we're just starting the inklings of that may happen, people are saying, but what, 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 what about the, uh, what about the 50 year olds? Um, we're not there, you know, we're not there yet. I think my broad answer to that would be, um, it's always going to be difficult if you have a rapidly changing economy and you're in your fifties, that's probably never going to be easy. Do we, can we do, I mean, saying people are all going to become coders. Well, you know, <laughs> they're not all going to become computer coders, but to take these sort of hard examples and say, therefore people should suffer from cancer forever, that we should not have the technology to deflect an asteroid coming toward Earth, that we should have that we should have more polluted air forever because of the 50 year olds uh, working at a refrigerator company in Ohio that because that those those refrigerators may be uh, uh, sent to be developed in Mexico. I think that's a very crimped vision of the kind of America and world we can have.
you're very much like my friend Ron Bailey, who's just like, I want to get to that to the next chapter where we get all this cool stuff and the acceleration starts again for innovation and technology and 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 new vistas and frontiers and yada yada yada. And I and I hear you and I I sometimes have a lot of that myself. And so I gotta ask you, like, so here you have Elon Musk, who right. I'd say it's fair to say is probably the single person doing the most to get us to becoming an interplanetary species, right? If not the most, top five for sure, right? And right. he's got his eye on the ball, wants to die on Mars, you know, rockets and yada, yada, yada. And then, oh, look, a squirrel called Twitter. And he gets distracted by that and says, this is where I'm going to put, you know, a big chunk of my capital and my energy and my reputation. Um why <laughs> like what how does how how i mean like i i get that like he could make twitter better which is like a low bar um you know um but w like you have you find this dispiriting that he's gotten distracted yes, yes. yeah very much so <laughs> uh, i want him i i want him working on electric autonomous cars and i want him working on rockets clearly curious he's super passionate about and which have been Listen, if he's a if he if he becomes sort of a world historical figure that our that our that our kids and our grandkids will learn about in school, much the way you know, to the extent they ever even talk about these people anymore in classes that they talk about is one of sort of the great the great businessmen, and even beyond that, it's not going to be because you know. Twitter will distribute the blue check marks in a different way. It's going to be because. He's, he played a huge role in a car company that not only will help electrify the U.S. economy, but greatly reduce, um, you know, traffic deaths tremendously instead of 50,000 a year, maybe, you know, handfuls, and helping create a, a space economy and, as he likes to say, a multiplanetary, a multiplanetary civilization. Though that is what his legacy will be, it will not be Twitter. Now, again, he's, he's going to judge his own legacy the way he wants to, uh, but I would rather have him laser focus on those other things uh, rather than Twitter. And listen, and he, he very well might do a, a great job with, with Twitter if that deal should ever finalize, and perhaps it won't. Um, but you know, I and I love and I love Twitter, I love it dearly, but that's not what I want Elon Musk spending his time on. Um, do you have a theory? I've talked about this a bunch on here, but like, I don't, I, you know, I haven't followed Musk that closely for a while. And then all of a sudden the last two years, because his sort of Twitter engagement has increased and, and also because the left started hating him and, um, and they hated him before he talked about buying Twitter. This is about two years now, I th it feels like. Maybe I'm off a little bit. But do you have a theory for why the sort of the left turned on Elon Musk and grew to sort of dislike him? Because he was kind of a poster boy for a while. Um, just kind of curious. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with sort of the real anti-billionaire obsession that has taken over uh, the Democratic Party, where it where it used to be there. There were I, th I think there used to be there were sort of you know 
good billionaires, you know, and bad billionaires, the bad billionaires or, you know, billionaires who made their money from gas and oil or otherwise weren't Democrats. Now they're sort of, I mean, that now it seems like they're kind of all bad. And so, I, you know, and so even apart from him, you know, getting into spats with Bernie Sanders or what have you, I think that's sort of like weird, um, hyper egalitarian impulse has made it very difficult for any Democrat to say anything good about a billionaire, even if he's doing things that supposedly, again, listen, the criticism of Silicon Valley is what they're doing, that you have all these people making a lot of money doing at best things that are inconsequential and at worst that are tearing down democracy. So, uh, you know, so we, so, and so, and that, and actually that's the criticism from the populist right that tech sector used to build rockets and now they build, you know, now they build uh, platforms. Well, here he has a, a guy who is building rockets. Now he's bad too. Uh, so I think, so I think a lot of it is this anti-billionaire impulse. Because listen, even listen, uh, you know, Warren Buffett's a bad billionaire too on the left. Even that he's been a long time uh, person of the left. You know, he's not abrasive. He's folksy, charming, but he's a bad guy too. So I, I'm not sure there are too many billionaires. Uh, you know, who, who are well thought of these days, um, you know, once you get too far left of center. Yeah. So I, I agree with that. I mean, I think that there's this weird return of sort of a European quasi Marxist kind of class consciousness. And the word has gone forth that billionaires as a class are illegitimate, right? All and, billionaires are a policy error. That's right. That's right. And like, what was it? Frank Bruni wrote a column for the New York Times saying, you know, uh, and lots of people have said this since, but saying that we just need to eliminate all billionaires. And um, my friend Kevin Williamson said, whenever your policy priors lead you to recommending the elimination of an entire class of people, maybe <laughs> you should revisit your, <laughs> your, yes. you know, your assumptions about things. Um, and, uh, but there's a... So Rob Long is the first one to point this out or make this argument to me. And I think there's something to it um, about Musk in particular. The sort of uh, elite left, um, the sort of upscale one percenter, top five percenter left, really loved Teslas when they were essentially uh, hair shirts with four wheels. Right, it was a way to prove it, it was a way to virtue signal that you were paying through the nose because of your commitment to f fighting climate change, and it's sort of like I remember the Wall Street Journal had this wonderful profile of people who belonged to uh, uh, Jaguar road clubs back when Jaguars were just money rolling money pits where they would cost you. 10 times what you paid for them over the course of like five years. And people like to brag about how much money they poured into their Jaguars as a sort of Veblen consumption kind of thing. And, and Rob's point is, is that what, once Musk started making these things affordable for normal people and making them into a rational economic choice, they took away, that took away the frisson of virtue signaling from them and it pissed off a lot of, of people on the left because, you know, making them a, a, a profitable thing rather than a loss leader um, took away the whole cachet of having a Tesla. I think there's something to that. I'm not saying it's 
a rounding error compared to the whole all billionaires are policy error thing. But I think there's something to that. But you know, it, it, it's, it's I don't know if you remember the uh, uh, the movie Tucker. I think it was of with Jeff Bridges. And, you know, it's about a guy who was going to find who was going to you know, build his own car and he was going to challenge, you know, the big automakers and uh, came up with seatbelts and windshield wipers. Seat, seatbelt cru- crushed by big auto. That's Eventually, right. this guy was a guy crushed by big auto. And there you have Musk like doing that, making it work. Really, the, the first real challenger, uh you know, in how long to the big auto companies and beating them and beating them, you know, Tesla's whatever, it's, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in market cap. And he's still a bad guy. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I would I would like to think that sort of the default position for people on the left is, listen, we're, um, you know, we don't like these big concentrations of wealth and corporate power. And, you know, you know we think there should be inheritance taxes. But boy, if you if you come up with a great idea and people find it valuable, go ahead, get as rich as you want. I would love for that to be sort of the default position. That, that it is clearly not the default position. Where even they I mean, even if that's how you make your money, uh, even this is even if it's not like France, where you know a lot of the extreme wealth is from inheritance. If you started from if you started not being super wealthy and ended up that way because you're doing something valuable, that's bad too. Um, I, again, I. That's odd. I, I, I just don't get that. There's also just a lot of innumeracy in this. You know, Brian Riedel's been making this point for a very long time that you could literally confiscate all of the wealth of the top 1%. I mean, not just raise their taxes, but like, you know, commissar-like, kick in their doors, take all the family jewels and leave them with, a, you know, the clothes on their back. And it still wouldn't pay for like Medicare for All and the Green New Deal. No, I think that's right. But it's something I learned... As I, you know, I would debate people about um, uh, you know breaking up big tech companies. That there's a that there's a basic lack of business knowledge uh, by lots of people. Uh, they don't know how businesses operate. They really fundamentally don't know how they make money. I would listen. Uh, Tesla and SpaceX uh, are are not new companies. These are these these are twenty year. They talk. I mean, you mentioned him going after the shiny thing like Twitter, and people. Say well, that's that's a problem with Elon Musk. His, his attention is diverted so easily. Those companies are twenty-year-old companies that have all that, especially in Tesla and SpaceX, could have gone out of, out of business numerous times. They they did not. Not only does that go to sort of his ability to stick with an issue, but his ability as a businessman to solve problems to uh, in two very difficult sectors. And there was somebody, on, I think MSNBC, who referred to Musk as a narr- that you know that you have our politics controlled by these not by a not so bright billionaire like e- Elon Musk. Um, I mean, it's an abs- it's an absurd statement to think that Elon Musk is like not a bright guy. Um, not only is he obviously a bright guy, not only is he a great businessman, but someone who is you know uh, when Tesla was having trouble meeting its sales quotas, he was like hanging doors. On the car itself. Now, I'm not sure I really want the CEO doing yeah. doing that, but uh, th- that to me shows someone who's fully invested for the long term in these companies. And the fact that he's not that he's that people were complaining that he should be on the cover of Time magazine um, as their as their person of the year, uh, by which I was quoted in that piece, uh, <laughs> it, it really I think says something bad uh, 
about about a certain uh, about a certain segment of the uh, you know American elite thinkers. So I mean, I, so I mean, uh, we're trying to avoid some rank punditry here. Um, you know, I, you're perfectly capable of doing it, but it's not. You know, when I say we have Chris Starwald for a reason, right? When we want to do a rank punditry, you know, he's the break glass in case of need of punditry emergency guy. But um, you say you know there are a lot of people who don't understand how businesses work. I agree. Obviously, that that's true as a broad proposition. There are also, in my experience, a lot of people who don't understand how journalism works. <laughs> um, you know, like there are a lot of people who don't understand. It's it's sort of like I can't. It was a Roger Scruton who used to say, "Everyone's a conservative in the things they understand that they're experts on," um, or something like that. Um, but uh, Elizabeth Warren is not a dumb person. She has some ideas that I don't think are particularly uh, well-advised um, that one might objectively call dumb, but I don't think she got there, got to those ideas through um, cognitive impairment or anything. And, and yet she talks about these massive, unconscionable profits of like grocery chains uh, you know, Kroger, she keeps signaling out Kroger, like, you know, what did Kroger do to Elizabeth Warren? And the way she talks about inflation is she says it is just simply a, a deliberate decision by individual corporations to increase their profits. Um, and lots of people seem to believe that. If you look at the polls, there are a lot of people who believe that rising prices are because corporations are just trying to make big profits. How do you respond to that? I mean, because like it's it's they're they're non dumb people making a dumb argument, and um, I'm not saying there aren't individual cases of quote unquote price gouging, even though I think price gouging is a misleading term as well. Um, but like, how do you respond to th this idea that all bad things in the economy are simply a matter of choice by a few malefactors of great wealth? I. I, I I don't know why she would say that. You assume I would assume she would know that that is at best a, a wild exaggeration. Um, when there were plenty of people warning that we would get higher inflation to some degree uh, when they passed that two trillion dollar package in March of twenty twenty one, there. It, it, this, this is not a, sort of an after-the-fact argument. There, in real time, people were saying, hey, this is too much. This is going to cause higher inflation, and now we've gotten higher inflation. So obviously you would say, well, why are, they, why are some people saying this now? Well, it's because of, because of politics, and Democrats are in a bad position. I mean, that's obviously, to me, uh, the simplest answer. But it seemed to me that it really goes back to this idea that somehow, like, again, the basics of, econo of economics like we got wrong and, tr you know, actually if trade is bad and actually, you know, you know, immigration just kills wages and all of what these, all these economists were saying. So yeah, they're probably wrong about inflation too. And they're probably wrong. Well, you know, like they weren't wrong and it should have been super obvious that you, if you, if you to another $2 trillion after just passing like a previous trillion dollars into a supply constrained economy, um, that you might get higher inflation. Well, 
And th- and that's and that's what we got it. And I don't want to. I, I can't explain other than saying it's just pure simple politics. You know why someone would sort of make this case, um, uh, but they do. I for one uh, try my hardest to make cases which I think are actually based in fact, but maybe I'm unusual in that. Um, well, no, it's, it's sort of the, um, it's AI's lane, you know, and, um, and there used to be a bunch more people who could fit shoulder to shoulder in that lane outside of AI, but the road's getting narrower and narrower. Let's talk for two. I, I have been, you know, I, I've been wanting to get Scott Linscombe on. We'll probably get him on next week, so we don't have to go too deep in all of this. But you recently wrote about like American support for trade, um, and we just got this weird announcement from the Clinton of the Clinton administration, the Biden administration, announcing this sort of post TPP new trade deal that doesn't, you know, include trade. Um, um. You know, where do you see, you know, how do you see the trade picture now and where do you see it going? Because it's the supply chain stuff alone kind of makes the magic eight ball kind of murky. Right. Um, I, I think, I mean, I, I, I think the prediction it would be um, the people who are for free trade are going to have to make that argument a lot harder, that you're going to have a lot more sort of regionalization. People are going to want supply chains, for instance, moved to their countries, if possible, moved to safer locations. A lot of this gets wrapped up in sort of the uh, being more concerned uh, about China. But we're not going to go back to a situation where we're going to make everything inside our country. Like, that's not going to happen. Uh, supply chains may adjust. Um, I think you're, you'll hear more calls and, again, you know, buy, you know, kind of the Buy America stuff. People who want to do that, uh, I'll probably have more momentum on their side than they've had in a long time. But I have a, har- a hard time believing that the fundamental contours of the global trading environment um, are going to change, uh, with the exception, exception that there's going to be a lot more skepticism about doing business in China. And I'm not sure how that's, uh, that's going to play out, um, whether, you know, 10 years from now, you know, whether you'll see all your iPhones made in China or maybe they'll all be made in India. I think that that could potentially change a lot. Um, but this sort of, you know, this fantasy that we're going to be making everything here in the United States, that would be a better world. Uh, that I mean, I, I mean, I think that's absurd. Yeah, I, I, I don't I don't dispute that. At the same time, I'm very sympathetic to the idea of that, like, it would be better to be a trading partner with India than with China. Um, I think the, the, the disengagement with, I I don't want to go to war with China. I don't want to cut off China completely from the economic global order and all that kind of stuff, uh, per se. But like, we just had this report today, this guy's hacked in and released all of this stuff about, uh, including photos, which are very disturbing about the, the Uyghur camps. Um, yes. And as a moral matter and also as a national security matter, being less dependent on China just makes a lot of sense to me. And if that if that creates some hiccups for the faster please perspective, I don't think that makes them invalid. It just means I, and I'm with you. I'm not for it. Autarkic. That's the right word. Right. Uh, economics. I was trying do, to avoid saying that word. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Um, uh, I'm not for thinking that we can do everything within our borders either, but like making India richer faster than we're making China rich sounds like a good thing too. Um, making Mexico richer um, faster than it's getting right now would probably be, if you want political stability that encourages um, to risk tolerance in it for innovation and whatnot, getting rid of a huge part of our immigration woes um, uh, by making Mexico much richer would be a, a, a positive thing. I mean, my point is that sometimes fixing the political order and the geostrategic order is actually the faster route than going as the crow flies simply on the sort of the economic development stuff. Uh, just real quickly, one, uh, I, you know, uh, about the Uyghurs, which is, uh, which is truly terrible. I know I've been to that part of China. I've been to Kashgar, China. I've, you know, I've had dinner with Uyghurs in the, uh, in sort of the old city in Kashgar, which the Chinese were ripping down and trying to move, you know, these people have lived there for, you know, generations into high rise apartments. Um, truly terrible what's happening, uh, happen happening there. And I wish we would talk, uh, a lot more about it. Um, I think it's also really interesting that w one lesson that we should be learning over the past few years about China is that they have not figured out some amazing alternate way of getting rich um, that uh, the Chinese economy, um, much I think much the shock to many populists uh, uh, here who love the right, who love the idea of an industrial policy that targets certain industries and certain parts of the countries. They have a huge economic problems in China. They have a huge productivity problem. Uh, they're ha they're actually having trouble keeping up with the United States in a lot of these areas and being on the technological frontier. Um, so I think we're I, I so I think right now we're learning a lot from China about why the American system works, and we should be very hesitant. Uh, to to give it up because China had some really fast growth for a long time as they were moving from being really, really poor to only kind of poor. And third, like the key elements, it's not the things I write about in my Faster Please Substack newsletter is about, is about like the obvious mistakes that we've made. The, the obvious mistakes like that we, we, we stopped investing in really um, basic research in cutting edge areas that we sort of regulated our way out of a lot of innovation. I mean, the, the very obvious things that we could be doing, that there actually should be a ton of, and I realize right now immigration is super controversial and trade's controversial. Should it really be controversial to make it easier to build stuff in this country? Should it be controversial to spend money, not on you know industrial policy, subsidizing certain companies, but just a lot more on the kind of basic research which then the private sector draws upon and commercializes? I would hope that kind of stuff we can actually find more agreement on. <laughs> I mean, it reminds me, I don't know if you remember this. Um, MSNBC used to do these ads where they would have their major personalities give these little sermons about stuff. This was during the Obama years. And Rachel Maddow did one in front of the Hoover Dam where she was like, this, look at this modern Marvel. And she talked, <laughs> you know, some of the stats. She's like, government can do great things. You know, and it was like all of this sort of we're in the Obama era support, you know, Obamacare, whatever. That was the subtext of it was, you know, we should be we should have a much more ambitious government to do great and gold, wonderful things. And I love the ad because the lack of self-awareness that if and like I don't like a lot of those dams. I one of the reasons why I like 
coming up with new energy things is I want to get rid of all of those dams on the West Coast um, one day. Um, but like, if you propose building a new Hoover Dam today, the idea that Rachel Maddow and her audience would be in favor of it is the, among the most ludicrous things imaginable. When you can't do things like that today because of the regulatory and environmental things, some of which are not necessarily bad, um, but a lot, you know, but this whole idea that we don't build great things and do great things in America anymore because um, we don't have ambitions for government is the kind of thing that only central planners can argue, right? And um, it's sort of like the, you know, if we could put a man on the moon, we can do X stuff, you know, argumentum ad apollum, which drives me absolutely batty. Um, but, uh, uh, and now I forgot the point where I was getting to. Well, I, I think there's, I mean, I think there is a slow, a, a, a finally, like some sort of recognition uh, on the left that we have made it hard to do things. Particularly, we, if you want clean energy, we make it very hard to do clean energy. Whether it's forget about nuclear or geothermal, they even do solar or wind. And I think they call it supply side progressivism. And and, and I think Ezra Klein wrote a column about it. You know, for the New York Times, that that these well intentioned regulations seem to have overcorrected for the problems that they were meant to address. A lot of pollution problems, uh, environmental other environmental problems in the 1960s, and now you have a society where you you want clean energy. Well, you can't you can't build the clean energy. Uh, it will take decades filling out environmental uh, assessment plans because of you know early 1970s 70s laws. Uh, I'm hoping there's a final finally a recognition that that has greatly slowed economic and technological progress in this country, which is especially bad because it's this country that's on the technological frontier. And if and if we're not there, then I'm not sure I see anybody else doing it. So it's really important that the U.S. get it right. And for a long time, we we haven't been getting it right. Um, all right. So we've, we've hit the hour mark. And now I feel like I've, I'm free to ask you the important stuff. Um, have you seen any good new sci-fi shows lately? I'll be honest with you. Um, it's it's. Uh, I think the final season just came out. Uh, but uh, there's a there was a remake uh, of Lost in Space. Uh-huh. I think the first season premiere maybe 2017, 2018. And I just finished the first season, and it reminds me a lot of what I think is one of the great sort of. And, and again, in my um, very affordably a price Substack newsletter, uh, <laughs> faster please. I write a lot of again. I write about culture. I try to find these like pro-tech, you know, pro-tech solutionism um, bits of media, and they're hard to find. A classic one is The Martian, where it shows technology is is good. It shows people solving problems to try to move humanity forward. And that's what I really noticed in, in, in Lost in Space, where people are confronting problems, and they solve them. You know, a lot of the plots, they're not about evil industrialists and they're not about um you know it's about people there's a problem something's broken here's how we fix it and we keep moving forward uh there's a a famous technological historian says technology bites back in which you create something but that thing uh that that bit of technology 
will have some negative negative side effects. Okay, fine. You deal with those, you move forward, and then you solve the next problem, and then the next problem. And then you end up with a civilization which which can deflect asteroids, which can pull cl- which can pull carbon out of the sky, uh, where people can where you know uh, people aren't getting cancer, where we can live longer, healthier, where you can where we all where people who who are born with low IQs can have those IQs ra- raised. I like to see that world. That's how you get to the monkey thing, by the way. Once you work on that technology, then we you know what, <laughs> and then we solve that problem too. Listen. Uh, that's the problem of Jurassic Park. We could kill those dinosaurs if we had to. They're not going to take over the world. And I fail. At, and being a, a big fan of the Planet of the Apes series, I just find it hard to believe that the apes could have ever, ever taken over. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in the was a French novel. There was some disease that like um, was part of like the die off like that made humans vulnerable. I can't remember for sure. Um well, I'm kind of pretending I don't know as much about this as what, <laughs> as what I actually do, unfortunately. And I do, I do fully understand that. Uh, and I, I, I will also recall that uh, when I used to live in Beverly Hills, California, I was at Century City Mall, and I had a, a weird moment of recognition that I realized that they actually shot one of the Planet of the Apes sequels at, at the old Century City Mall uh, in California, and it was the uh, Apes movie where the Apes finally take over. And it was a it was a weird moment for me. Um, on the, I, I watched that 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 Lost in Space thing, uh, the remake. It wasn't bad. At least the first season. I haven't watched this the second season or anything. Um, and I got to say, if you go back and watch the original Lost in Space, the two things that stand out the most are they had such a low budget that they have this single sound effect for everything, and <laughs> and, and two unbelievably creeper creepy pedophile vibe coming off of dr smith um <laughs> uh, amazing, an amazing character an amazing performance just but very quickly i would also point out to a, a tv show the expanse based on the book series which is a good example because it shows uh it shows the humanity in the future where there's been problems you know climate change has been a problem uh you know it's not a perfect world but i think overall it's a world that sees problems, has tried to solve them, has gone out into space. They're mining asteroids. I am not interested in it. I'm not trying to create a utopia. I'm just trying to create a, you know, a world that's like, that's better. Uh, and uh, I, I, that I think we can do. Uh, I think creating a perfect world where no one ever, ever has a problem that, uh, that, that's not the, that's not the game I'm in. I just want to create a better world for more people. The uh, original Star Trek series episode, the arena where, Kirk has to fight the Gorn, another example of can-do spirit, right? Where he physically, he can't physically beat the Gorn, yes. but he figures out how to make a weapon to beat the Gorn, which is a uh, spoiler alert for everybody out there. Um, <laughs> I got to have you watched yes. Discovery or Picard or Strange New Worlds? Um, I, I have, uh, I have found Discovery to be, uh, I bailed on that. I have found it to be unwatchable, uh, too many mm-hmm. speeches about the Federation and too much whisper, whisper mm-hmm. talking, not a big fan of Discovery, uh, Picard somewhat better. Um, first season was good. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I wish it would have been made 10 years ago when Patrick Stewart could have been a more sort of active yeah. character on the show physically. I mean, he's, uh, and the best thing about Star Trek discovery was the, uh, captain Pike character, 
um, uh, who stole every episode it was in. So I'm very glad they've made a whole show about him. Uh, Strange New Worlds, which I have not seen yet, unfortunately, but I am looking forward uh, to that. Uh, of course, the actor playing uh, Captain Pike also played Black Bolt in the uh, new Doctor Strange. Um, which I have not seen yet. Um, I will tell you, I agree with you about Discovery, though I stuck with it. Um, it's, I, I think people use woke way, way too much, but it's leaning in on, in the latest season on like sexual trans identity politics stuff is just, it's, it's kind of exhausting and preachy. Um, uh, I thought first season of Picard was good. Last season of Picard, um, was so ham fisted and didactic, um, and, had so many unbelievable violations of canon that uh, it was essentially unforgivable. But Strange New Worlds so far, I think, is the first Star Trek product maybe since, like, the later seasons of TNG that is, like, actually somewhat loyal to the actual best parts of Star Trek. Um, it's pretty good. It's not super political or woke or anything like that. It's very much like Pike is, you could see why Pike was replaced by Captain Kirk because they wanted continuity in, in that job kind of thing. It's, it's good. It's good. Um, and I just have to ask, I've talked about it too much on the show, but have you watched Raised by Wolves? Uh, I am, uh, again, I'm also a latecomer, but I am now in the season two by, by Raised by Wolves. And I like it. Uh, Can you articulate I, I, why I, you like the it? Because it gets... I, I watch it, but I can't. It is so grotesque and weird that I find it very difficult <laughs> to explain why I am to myself. I can't like why? Why can't I look away from this? <laughs> I, I, it's just I utterly have no idea where this show is going, and I felt I did yeah, know yeah, where yeah. it was going because you know the original conflict is set up, and I know Ridley Scott. Uh, who's the, I guess the creator of the show is a, you know, you know, he's very sort of, you know, anti-religion. He's an atheist. So the original conflict was between atheists and these, and this kind of like post-Christian sun God, uh, religion. And I thought that it was going to be, that I was just going to be completely unwatchable. Uh, but then it turned out that I think to be kind of watchable. And I just like, I just don't know what, what this show is about at all. <laughs> and, and I'm interested in finding out some more. It, leans into the weirdness more than any other show I can remember. I mean, there's some movies that lean so crazily into weirdness, like, but like to do it episodically over now, I guess three seasons is just, it's bold and unsettling and, and makes, makes me feel unsafe when I watch it, but I can't, I can't look away. It's, it's, um, it's, it's like, frankly, you know, listening to, Michael Strain talk about Bruce Springsteen. Anyway, so um, very uh, James Bethacoukas, if listeners had not caught that, his newsletter <laughs> is called Faster Please. <laughs> you'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll stand up and cheer. Uh, you can get it through Substack. And, um, yes. <laughs> uh, and thanks so much for coming on The Remnant. All right, so uh, Jimmy P has left the studio and um, uh, um, I had fun, you know, that was more, uh, it was more animated than I'm used to seeing, uh, Pethacoukas. Um, he must've had some sort of updating to his software. Um, and, uh, uh, I, 
glad that now that the COVID times are over, that maybe I'll start seeing them at lunch again because, you know, pre-COVID, that's where I got most of my AEI gossip was sitting around the lunch tables at AEI and uh, people are finally coming back uh, into the office. And um, I- I'm, a, I'm heading to the office in a little bit to record the 500th episode Palooza of The Remnant, which um, you'll be able to listen to, I guess we'll drop it next week in its appropriate slot. Um, and, uh, you know, you should gird your loins now for potential like weird audio things because it's a live studio audience kind of thing. And, you know, um, no laugh track, like the, just the real thing. And, uh, but it should be fun and exciting. And, um, and thanks to everybody for, you know, becoming members of the dispatch. There's still room for more. Um, and, uh, and thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. (laughs) 